Welcome to Design World's Technology Tuesdays podcast, conversations about new technologies and approaches for design engineering. Hello, I'm Michelle Froze. Welcome to Design World's Technology Tuesdays podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today's topic is design for manufacturing injection molding, and we're going to hear from Jonathan Cottrell, lead program manager with PTI. PTI is a custom injection molder and manufacturer of plastic components and assemblies that specializes in low volume production. With nearly 25 years of experience, Jonathan has developed products in several industries, such as automotive, aerospace, military, agriculture, medical devices, and others. He's had the opportunity in his career to follow products throughout their life cycle from concept to completion, which has led to invaluable experience to draw from when producing quality parts using design for manufacturing practices. Of course, when designing any component, and particularly a plastic part, there are several key factors to take into account, including the uniform wall thickness, the gate location, and even applying the proper draft to your part model. So this discussion is intended to shed light on such key areas of design with insight from our guest. John, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to talk with you. All right, thanks for having me. For sure. So before we begin, I was wondering if you could please share a little more about your background and career focus considering design for manufacturing is such a broad topic. Well, as you notice, I've been, I've been in the industry for well, you know, close to 25 years, starting out as in a small injection molding house shortly after high school. My education, my formal education included a bachelor's in mechanical engineering with a specialty in plastic product design. And then from there, I moved on, actually got my MBA. But also, as you had pointed out, I've been launching products as a design engineer, a, a design release engineer, a program manager, a project engineer, all sorts of different names throughout the years in many different sectors. But typically the focus of the parts that I've launched are automotive interiors. Um, they're the more the middle ground plastics. They're not the specialty thin wall molding or uh, high volume type products. It's more of your uh, components that you handle on a day-to-day -day basis here. The mouse that you use with your computer, the devices that you see in a hospital room, uh, monitors, uh, cell phone cases, stuff like that, more of the general size plastic components. Got it. So you've got experience with quite a few different components and avenues within manufacturing and design. I'd like to think so. Why do you think it's important that a designer consider the manufacturing process early on in a project and at the beginning design phase of a product? Well, really understanding how the parts can be made will then allow the designer to apply principles that are specific to that manufacturing process. Often we get designs that look great on paper. However, the design is not conducive to injection molding but would be great for like a machining operation. Um, I couldn't tell you how many times over the years I received a part drawing or part model and then realized, hey, this isn't made for injection molding. Um, so by not understanding the requirements needed for the molding world, a lot of time and a lot of cost 
is lost to bring that product to fruition. Can you tell us more about the injection molding process? For example, what are the main design aspects a designer should think about when developing a part? Well, I'd probably go on this for hours and hours if I really wanted to, but uh, we'll keep kind of keep it focused to a few specifics, sure. um, which are like material selection or more commonly term is the resin being used, but we'll call it materials how thick the wall stock is, uh, adding draft angles, uh, parting lines, where are the parts actually gonna be gated, um, how do we wanna eject the part, um, the design of bosses and ribs. And if it's not a standalone part, how will that part be joined or mated to its sister part? Right. You mentioned the material. Are there any features to consider when selecting the material used for a project? Definitely. Um, one of the first questions that I would ask is, what's the environment the material is going to live in? Is it going to be encountering any chemicals, any extreme temperatures? Will it be a cosmetic part? Or is it something that people are going to touch and feel? Another thing is, do you need like a higher engineered grade for performance? Yeah, I typically would lean on the material resin supply manufacturers to help give us guidance once we understand what the application is. Companies such that as PTI, we have our preferred suppliers that, and we can help guide a customer into what material grade to use. However, fully understanding who's gonna use it, what's it being used for, where is it being used, and how are they gonna use it goes a long way. It's basically developing a story kind of like what we learned in grade school, the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Once we answer those questions, we can really hone in on uh, the type of material that we need to use. That's the five W's and the H. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so based on your experience, John, what would be considered too thin or perhaps even too thick of a wall? And how much does the type of resin typically play a factor in this decision? Well, we... As I pointed out, you know, I'm taking this from the point of view of like your standard uh, plastic part. So our recommendation is anywhere from two to three millimeters is a good wall thickness. And that helps to keep uh, more consistent and predictable post mold shrinkage. And as I pointed out, you know, we are not talking about thin wall molding. You know, we see a lot of plastic packaging, like water bottles and containers that are really thin. I'm more talking in the, the general uh, plastics or general design parts. Um, those are very specialized, very thin wall, uh, very high volume. So that's where I'm kind of coming from. Right. A good story is like early in my career, and it's something I will never forget. <laughs> uh, I was working at a company that made these really cool levers for a very large furniture supplier. They look like wood, and they're about three quarters inch in diameter. And at I believe they actually had some wood filler in it because they always smelled like you're by a bonfire when we ran those parts. The intent of the part was actually to replace a wood handle. And so they used the exact same part design. However, that large mass at three quarter inch diameter caused a lot of processing problems. And the parts actually had to be dumped into a chilled bath for about five minutes in order to cool. Oh, wow. And if they didn't go in that bath, they would warp and sink and twist. It would kind of look like a a coiled up snake laying on the floor. 
And so that long, dirty process was finally redesigned some years later to core out the part and to give it good design principles. And it eliminated the need for that water bath and it reduced cycle time. So it saved a lot of cost to the consumer or to the customer, the consumer and the manufacturer by applying proper design principles. So every time I see a really thick part, my mind goes immediately to that handle and what it actually, what it did and then what it became. So yeah, it's definitely something to think about. And like I said, that story, every time I see that a uh, very thick part, it just takes me back. Good experience though. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then well, the other uh, happier question you're talking about materials and wall stock. When we look at materials and how thicker than the part is, you know, choosing the material that has the right flow characteristics for that wall stock. Let's say we have a very large flat part. If we have a material that is not very viscous, it's not going to fill very easy. And then again, we have a, a manufacturing issue. So we definitely need to be cognizant of the material choice versus how far the material needs to flow. Good point. Uh, do these flow characteristics affect why the gate location is important? And are there different types of gates? So yes, to both of those questions. <laughs> um, gating the part, or uh, by definition, gating is where we inject the material into the uh, cavity or the part geometry. This is really important because it dictates how far the part flows, um, where the flow fronts are, if there's any holes that we need to go around, where the knit lines would be. And then the gating also affects what, the, what we see, the visual end of things, and what we touch, the tactile surfaces. You know, for instance, a gate on the A surface of the part may, le may leave a bit of a gate vestige. And if it's a let's say a medical device that a surgeon needs to touch and they're wearing a rubber glove, that gate vestige could tear that glove and now the surgeon is exposed to whatever they're working on. Um, something that we definitely want to avoid. So kind of leads me to the next thing is like during the tool design process, we, we actually go through those questions and we get gate location approvals and whatnot from the customer. But if the designer actually has it in their head where do, we, where, where do we want to gate this? Or where's a, an area on the part that is a non-tactile surface or a non-visible surface? And we can identify that on the part drawing or even a feature on the part at design, then that allows or eliminates that design cycle once we get into tool design. Such an important consideration prior to the manufacturing. What are the different types of gates available? I guess, fortunately and unfortunately, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> but some of the, one of the main ones is an edge gate. Uh, an edge gate is, for an example, when we were kids, we all did models, or we help our kids with models right now, and or toys. And a lot of them come on like what we call a frame. And that frame has the part in it and the runner. And when we break those pieces off, we get a little bit of a little standing vestige on the side of the part. And that is conducive to an edge gate. Unless you have a very good operator that's trimming it with a knife or some clippers, that's going to be left over. There's also what's called a subgate. 
subgates are sheared off during the part ejection process. A little more uh, clean, but yet a little more complex to manufacture. And then there's another thing called a cashew gate. This is something that wraps around to the back side of the part. Again, becomes a little more complex, but it hides the gate location from the user or from the end user. Um, then we get into more complex like direct gates and valve gates, which are part of a hot manifold system. Um, at this point, we, you know, we really would like the designer to get to know the gate styles and to consider part use and um, even con consult ourselves or a tooling expert or even a quick internet search to find you know, what, the, what options are out there for the design. The, the part design makes sense uh, considering there's so many yes and these are these are the common ones there's definitely more options available and you know tooling experts and process engineer experts you know they a lot of guys have their opinions on what's the best and everybody has their own opinion right um, but one thing we do need to be wary of though is different materials so going back to material selection and gating styles work with each other. Like if it's a very brittle and highly engineered material, it may not be conducive to uh, the cashew gate I recommended because those need to have some flexibility in the materials. So yeah, we can't have the best of all the worlds. You can't have the best material and a cashew gate. It's gotta be a combination of. And does cost heavily influence the gate choice? Cost definitely plays a part. So that you're, Designer may not care about cost too much, but yet when we think of the system as a whole, we definitely need to take that into account. You mentioned part ejection a little bit earlier, John. What variables should be considered when ejecting the part from the mold? Ejecting the part out of the mold is ridiculously critical for uh, quality because I can give you a really good plastic part, but if we can't get it out of the tool, you get a piece of steel with it. <laughs> You know, we want to make sure that what, through the design process, the designer keeps in the back of the head, can we add a feature on the part that we can eject on or identify on the drawing or even the CAD model areas to eject or not to eject? Another thing is the draft of the part. If we don't have any draft on a wall, then that wall may not release from the tool very well. So, you know, really, to, what is draft? It might be a question you guys are asking. Um, draft is if a part has a vertical wall, say perpendicular to the uh, direction of the tool steel, that perpendicular wall needs to have a little bit of an angle on it so it releases from the tool. A lot of times we see designs that don't have any draft on it. Therefore, that part would probably stick into the tool. If it sticks in the tool, we're either getting some deformation or the part could be cracking or stressing. And so having a little bit of a draft definitely helps with that release. And I'm asked a lot, how much draft do we need? Typical rule of thumb and what we would recommend is one and a half degrees. Um, that is a starting point. As a molder, I'm going to always ask for more. But as a product designer, I'm always going to ask for less. So it, it definitely is, uh, we play back and forth a little bit because different materials can 
mold just fine with less draft than other materials. Through the years, I've definitely seen parts with a little bit of draft and a lot of ribs. And it's pretty cool when you see, when you try to mold that because sometimes we get ejector pins that blow right through the part or we get parts that break and shatter as you try to get them out of the tool. So nobody really likes to see that because it's a mess to clean up. No doubt. Yeah. Um, one other thing that should be noted about like surface draft and materials, especially the A side of the part or the, the visual side, is a lot of people like to apply a texture to the part. In the automotive world, you'll see a lot of uh, animal prints or fake leather type textures. Uh, those textures have their own draft requirements and those draft requirements are typically published either by the texture house or by the OEM saying, all right, this is how much draft this type of texture or the surface finish needs. So there's definitely documentation out there to help guide a designer on what that needs to look like. I was just gonna ask you about the aesthetics or look of a part. How can the designer potentially improve the aesthetics of a component, but without compromising its integrity or reliability? Well, first off, most designers, their parts look beautiful on the A side. <laughs> Every designer wants their parts to look great, but it's really, it's a lot of the B side stuff that we need to be wary of for the aesthetics. And we touched on a few things uh, already, be it how we gate it and then adding draft. But that draft is actually, needs to really be added and thought about when we talk about the materials on the, or the components on the B side, like I just mentioned. Those features on the back side are typically your structural components or your connection points, such as ribs and bosses and clips. And again, the, those backside features how their design really affects the A side or the front side of the part. For instance, a rib. A rib should only be about 50% as thick as the wall it's connected to. If it's thicker than that, you will see what we call read through. And you, know, you can kind of get a witness or maybe a little sink on the A side. So you got a little bit of a mass there. In addition to that, that draft we just talked about, let's say we have no draft on that rib and we think we can mold it. Or somebody says they can't add any draft to it. Uh, another thing you can get is called suck back or pull. So as you push the part out of the tool, that area like pulls back and it just leaves a little bit of witness where that rib is because that rib is pulling on that A surface of the part. It's kind of like tugging on a string. A great example of this is like this morning, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm prepping for this uh, discussion and I'm looking, I got some speakers up around my computer and I notice a witness all the way around. Those speakers are round and I just see the witness of that rib. So I actually pop the cover off and that's exactly where a rib is. is I'm seeing this witness all the way around. It doesn't really affect the function. Speakers are great, but visually I can see it. As a, uh, somebody in the plastics world, I notice it. A general consumer may or may not, but again, it goes back to, is that, was that designed properly? Probably not, but does it meet the, uh, the intent of the function of the part? Definitely. Imagine you notice a lot of components now and how they're designed and how well the design is. My, uh, my wife, uh, she picks on me for every time I get into a car, I look at all the plastic and uh, critique it. <laughs> it's a side effect of your job. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what about tolerances or what tolerances should a designer consider for an injection molded part? In, does material play a factor here? 
So the tolerance question is probably hands down the number one question that I'm asked. Oh, interesting. Yeah. When I look at a drawing for the first time and we start looking at tolerances, I say, hey, this looks a little tight for this feature. The question's always, well, what can you hold? Or how tight can we go? But the good thing is, there's a lot of documentation out there. Um, there's white papers written, there's books, there's industry guides that have been published over you know, the last 50 years, probably ever since Bakelite was invented, which is one of the first plastics. Right. Um, so I like to help guide the designer to utilize those tools for developing the tolerances. Each grade or more each material family has those basic guidelines. But the one thing to note is, yes, they are, those guidelines are from a pretty generic geometry. You know, it's a flat plate or it's a, a round part, consistent wall stock. And we break all those rules when we design plastics. You know, there's not a perfect design out there. Everything that we design or we uh, injection mold, they're complex shapes. Rarely do you get a nice little flat plate or a nice little flat dog bone that a lot of those specifications or criteria were developed from. So again, I, you know, we go back to the baseline recommendations and then we can work from there. It sounds like you get a little more freedom in design though with plastics perhaps. Uh, you know what, there's, we start with the, the standard recommendations, uh, you know, kind of what we're talking about and then we can play from there, we'll say. Earlier, you mentioned connection points. Can you say more about these and about how plastics are typically joined together? All right, I will uh, start and say, uh, joining is not my specialty, but I do know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> the first thing I, I would say, and probably a lot of my colleagues would say, is we recommend staying away from adhesives, such as glue or epoxies. Other people may have other thoughts on that, but in my, I guess, career, they seem to tend to be messy and inconsistent. And if not utilized correctly, we could have a chemical impact in the plastic where the adhesive could degrade the plastic. And it goes down, that goes back to not vetting out properly, you know, the application and the adhesive. Um, however, the last couple of years that, I guess that world or the applications, I've seen more and more improvements. My company, we've recently put in a six axis robot that is using a two part epoxy to join a few parts but that was without some reservations. In addition to like those adhesives, there's a litany of snap fit and press fit design concepts that can be used. Uh, our design team, we have a very large library of recommendations for snap fits and press fits. Again, it's what's the application, where's the part being used, how it's being used, and that goes into what kind of snap fit or press fit that we would recommend. We also see a lot of uh, use of thread forming screws, or people call them PT screws. Those are really used if we have two components that have to, that are joined together and they don't have to be serviced. They don't have to be taken apart and put back together for any reason. We also see the use of thermal inserts and like a cap end screw. And those typically are used for components that are serviced. I have to take a door off to replace the battery or get into a circuit panel, something like that. Like an example of that is if you have children or some of the new toys out nowadays, you know, before when we replaced batteries out, it was just this little door that had a snap fit. 
You know, think of your, even your uh, TV remote control, very easy to get in and out of. But now some of the toys have little screws that you have to undo. And in order to keep them cheap, they just use a, a self-tapping screw that after one or two times replacing the batteries, we strip out that screw hole or that screw boss. In my opinion, the application wasn't utilized correctly. They use something that works one time, but it doesn't work many times. On higher end products, you see that that screw is going into a, a thermal insert or a molded in insert that has that thread there. So it can be serviced with no degradation. So again, it goes back to how's it gonna be used, who's gonna use it and how often. And then one of the, the last joining techniques that we, we utilize, and, and by no means is it the, the only, is uh, ultrasonic welding. If you're unfamiliar with the term, basically we have a piece of equipment that puts a lot of energy into the surface of the plastic part, exciting the molecules and actually remelting them at a point of contact with the other plastic. And that gives a great seal. Um, you have materials that bond on a chemical level. So it's not just a mechanical bond, it's actually a chemical bond to put those two pieces together. It gives a great seal, it can be hermetic. The strength is quite high and it's typically used on parts that may or may not have great geometry that can have a snap or a screw put into them. So again, the, the joining technique is really a function of what the design needs are and what the design allows it to have. I edit quite a bit in the fastening industry. So I know one of the key points is to consider fastening uh, earlier on in the design stage. So you make some good points here. Out of curiosity, did the epoxy, the project with the epoxy work out okay? Uh, it definitely, it, it is. It's still, we'll say pre-launch phase, but from a functional standpoint, it's definitely working. Yep. Yeah, that's good. Are there any other more recent technical advances specific to injection molding that a designer should be aware of in relation to manufacturing? Kind of a tough question for me because when we are looking at technical advances of how we injection mold or the equipment, you know, there's, there's always the next thing, the next better, the, uh, the new piece of equipment. However, the basics of designing a part really stay the same. Where we see the advances in technology versus the design, what I would recommend is we get through the, I guess, the initial concept of the part and the good design principles. And then we start looking at the system design, which is all right, the new technology and how that would affect what the part design looks like. One thing going back to, we were talking gating earlier, you know, new technologies and new ways of gating, those definitely play into how the part is designed. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do we design around the, the process? Do we design around the use? So it, it's definitely understanding where we need to get to, but we also need to be, all right, where do we start with? I have been involved with a lot of those uh, new technology introductions over the years and really it, we started with the part made sure the part was a sound design and then we brought in how are we going to make it with this new technology or what new technology we're going to introduce and then what do we need to tweak on the design for that new technology so beginning with the 
fundamentals first, it sounds like is important. You got it. I guess my overall suggestion for a product designer is that definitely start with those general principles, gain a, a good understanding of what the, the manufacturing process is and the needs from the design perspective. Then we engage the manufacturer and, you know, there's a lot of knowledge out there, either documented at the material supplier level, at the molding level, within the tool build world, you know, utilize your resources out there. Not one person knows it all, but there's a, a collective knowledge out there that will definitely help to get a product, a good product to market faster by utilizing the knowledge available. You mentioned quite a few here, but any other good practices that our listeners might want to consider when it comes to design or injection molding? I guess my biggest thing is doing a little bit of homework goes a long way. Over the years, I've seen a lot of people design a product that they believe is good without doing a little bit of research that would provide them information readily. So it's, yeah, it goes back to do a little homework, talk with the molders. You'll gain a lot of knowledge really fast. And most, most molders will definitely work with you. For us here at uh, PTI, we love getting in on the ground floor on, on the design end of things. Our design team here is well-versed in design for manufacturing practices. You know, we have a, a nice uh, format that we follow with you know, very specific questions. A lot of them have to do with the items that we've talked about today. That's great. Thanks so much for this information, John. We're nearing the end of our time available. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on or any final points before we end our discussion today? You definitely can reach out to us. And we have, we have a lot of design documentation available. You can find us at teampti.com. And within our website, there's documentation on our DFM process and feel free to reach out to us through that portal if you will and take a look to see what we have to offer. Excellent thanks again for joining us John and providing such great insight and thank you listeners for your time and attention. To learn more about us visit Design World's site at designworldonline.com and be sure to subscribe and share this wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks everyone and have a wonderful day. This has been a Design World Network podcast. Design World is published by WTWH Media.